back to a bit of fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by day and don't need an excuse to talk books, at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few recommendations you might like if the movie sounds like your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, 1998's Ever After a Cinderella Story, a quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the episode or another episode you loved with someone or someones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing. I would be ever so appreciative. Now on with the show. <laughs> I know there are some mixed feelings about Cinderella and her many adaptations. I once heard author Gail Foreman hop on a soapbox. I think it was at a kind of conferency book fest thing I was at uh, about why she would never let her daughter watch the movie, a movie about a woman being rescued by a man. The thing is, I never really got that out of the story. Yes, Cinderella ended up with the prince in the end, but I never, even as a little girl, saw it as her being rescued. She wasn't a damsel in distress in my head. She was a woman who had managed to find kindness and gentility in a truly horrible situation, a situation that I believe she would have continued to make the best of as far as she could, whether the prince found her or not. So when she became a princess, she was a princess of the people who would understand the trials and tribulations of the working class. No, I wasn't a super sophisticated thinker as a kid, but I guess I didn't see the damsel element because it never occurred to me that a woman couldn't take care of herself. And so as I was searching the interwebs for info about the movie, I found an interesting article on avclub.com. They have a lot of good stuff on there. I really enjoy. I get their like, email newsletter and things and really enjoy everything they have. Uh, this was back from 2021 that discussed a bit of a resurgence of the Cinderella story as Andrew Lloyd Webber released Bad Cinderella in the West End in London, and Amazon released its adaptation of Cinderella with Camilla, Camilla? <laughs> Camilla Cabello? Camilla Cabello? I can't remember what her name is. A version I actually really, really like. They bring in modern music. Uh, it was it was fun, um, and I have evangelized to so many unsuspecting people. If you have not watched that one, you should watch it. It's a good time. But in the piece, they talk about a bit about writer Susanna Grant's take on the story as she was working on the script, and we'll talk about her more in a bit. She decided that rather than to deconstruct the story, she wanted to reconstruct it using a historical bent. It's a faulty historical bent. <laughs> it is historical fiction. Uh, but getting rid of the magic and, quote, subbing in a rational romanticism characterized by using Leonardo da Vinci as the fairy godmother. So Grant was asked if she purposefully wanted to create a more self-reliant Cinderella, and she said kind of the same thing I always felt. I'm not sure that was conscious. It may just not occur to me to come up with characters who can't take care of themselves. The article goes on to then kind of discuss how Drew Barrymore got involved, how the movie has the mix of swashbuckling fun and social justice theming as Errol Flynn's The Adventures of Robin Hood, the issue of toxic family and trauma, and the rom-com structure of the screenplay. It eventually touches on a vet video essay piece by The Take that came to a similar conclusion as mine as a child, challenging the assumption that it's a story of a weak, passive woman. I'm going to just quote the next part because that just seemed easiest and they said it really really well 
The take reframes Disney's Cinderella as the tale of a woman who chooses radical kindness and compassion in the face of abuse and oppression, something the 2015 live-action remake phrased as the motto, Have courage and be kind. Cinderella's greatest strength is mental rather than physical. Hers is the story of finding a way to maintain your humanity, even in difficult circumstances, you're powerless to change. And in a world where life sometimes sucks in ways you can't simply fight your way out of, there's a strength in presenting that kind of fairy tale for kids too. I fully acknowledge that there are times to be kind and times to fight. And I think that's why I loved Ever After so much because Danielle showed girls that you can do both. There is a beauty in kindness and there is courage and fierceness in standing up for what you believe in. And it's okay to get the guy as long as the guy respects you for who you are actually listens to you when you talk. <laughs> I'll link to both the AV Club and the talk video in case you're interested. They'll be in the episode info wherever you're listening. Links directly to those. Now for some of the movie deets. Ever After was directed by Andy Tennant, and I was not familiar with his name when I hopped into research for the episode, but I am familiar with some of his other movies. A few like Fools Rush In with Matthew Perry and Selma Hayek, an overlooked rom-com that I have just officially added to the list of potential episodes, Anna and the King, Sweet Home Alabama, a favorite, Hitch, Another favorite, Fool's Gold with Matt, Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey, not a favorite, and The Bounty Hunter with Jennifer Aniston and Gerard Butler, also not a favorite. But hey, a substantial list I've heard of. Looks like he also directed an episode of Sliders, just in case that excites anyone. Tennant is also listed as a writer along with Susanna Grant and Rick Parks. This research has <laughs> become one of my favorite parts of the podcast. It's like... Um, kind of like six degrees of separation. Just interesting to see an individual's talent spread across things I love or have seen and how they kind of weave in with other people that are creating art that I have loved and seen. So just, it's kind of cool. So Susanna Grant also worked on Pocahontas of Disney animated fame. 28 Days Later with Sandra Bullock. It's a good movie. <laughs> Eric Brockovich, Catch and Release, also on the list of potential episodes. Charlotte's Web, The Soloist with Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. And The Fifth Wave, which was an okay movie, but a better book. So Rick Parks only has four writing credits to his name. An episode of Major Dad. <laughs> I don't know why I love that as much as I do. Ever After, an episode of Big Wolf on Campus a show I absolutely adored in middle school, and The Secret Dare to Dream, which I am unfamiliar with but probably will never see because of its connections to The Secret, the book, even though it stars Josh Lucas, who reminds me of Paul Newman, and that's just a whole conversation in and of itself. So Ever After stars Drew Barrymore as Danielle, Angelica Houston as Rod Milla, Dugray Scott as Prince Henry, Patrick Godfrey as Leonardo da Vinci, Megan Dodds as Marguerite, and Melody Linsky as Jacqueline. The movie had a budget of $26 million. It made a little over $8.5 million its opening weekend. It would go on to grow $65.7 million in the U.S. and worldwide would bring in about $98 million. The movie was released on July 31st, 1998. This is a summer we have talked about before in the summer blockbuster season. Uh, so it was another fun summer of movies, including The Truman Show, on the list. Can't Hardly Wait, on the list of podcast episodes. Six Days, Seven Nights, not on the list. Mulan, The X-Files, Armageddon, Lethal Weapon 4, There's Something About Mary, The Mask of Zorro, The Parent Trap, and Saving 
Private Ryan. I know it's all a matter of hindsight, but I don't feel like we get summers like that anymore. Summers filled with the release of movies that we may rewatch on the regular. It's been a very long time since we've had a summer like that. We have another certified fresh movie on Rotten Tomatoes. According to their tomato meter, it has a 91% according to critics' reviews and an 84% audience score with over 250,000 ratings. Roger Ebert said of the film, The movie that follows is one of surprises, not least that the old tale still has life and passion in it. I went to the screening expecting some sort of soppy children's picture and found myself in a costume romance with some of the same energy and zest as The Mask of Zorro. And I was reminded again that Drew Barrymore can hold the screen and involve us in her characters. We'll talk about that (laughs) a little more later. And now on to a summary of the movie, or as I like to call it, a summary in three parts, because I like to look at the different acts of the movie through a lens of storytelling. So we're just going to dive in with act one, the setup. After a short intro with the Grimm brothers, yeah, we get to meet the Grimm brothers. We meet Danielle as a precocious kid who is heartbroken at the death of her father. Her life of love and laughter kind of comes to a very abrupt end, and we see a troubled relationship with her emotionally distant stepmother, Rodmilla. What a great name. Angelica Houston has this smarmy, sophisticated, elitist look on her face as Rodmilla the whole movie. It's beautiful. She also gets under your skin at times um, with her voice. It's a bit soft, but goes slightly high-pitched, Every once in a while, that is, it's just a little terrifying and utterly condescending. It's just, it's perfect. She's great in this role. As Danielle ages, it's pretty clear she's more of a servant than a stepdaughter, and she's pretty peeved when Rodmilla sells one of her servants to pay off some of her debt. The servants have become Danielle's family. She was raised with them. Um, they kind of treated her as their own daughter, and so she's upset understandably so, when Maurice, the father figure, gets sold off to pay off some of Ranmilla's debt. Danielle is doing her morning chores when she discovers a man stealing a horse from their stables. She decks the dude with an apple in the head, and we get the inciting event of the story, a reminder that this is the event that kind of sets the story in motion. Danielle assaulting Prince Henry with produce. It's a meat cute. He eventually reveals himself and she does the customary bow drop to the ground to her knees. Oh my goodness, can't believe I just hit the prince in the head with an apple. Of course, letting him have the horse without any more projectiles and he gives her 20 gold francs for her silence. Don't tell anybody I was here. So Prince Henry is trying to get out of Dodge. He's tired of his parents telling him what to do, but more annoyingly, he's tired of them trying to get him married. He wants to find love, but not be sold a wife. So off he goes, tearing through the woods, trying to evade the guards who are attempting to find him and bring him back to the castle, when he stumbles upon a sweet bearded fellow being robbed by gypsies. Because he's a good dude, he hurries after one of the thieves when the bearded fellow says that the stolen item is a matter of life and death. So we get a chase, a bit of a fight, and then Prince Henry grabbing hold of the item as he falls off a cliff into a lake. Turns out, The bearded fellow is Leonardo da Vinci, our fairy godmother of the movie, and the life or death matter is none other than the mysterious lady herself, the Mona Lisa. So Prince Henry is pretty stoked at meeting the 
scientist slash artist. He's immediate. He immediately believes that maybe Leonardo, our friend Leo, can talk some modern sense into his parents and get him out of the wedding situation. Now caught because his guards have caught up with him, uh, Henry returns the horse to um, Danielle's home and makes his way back to the castle. While that's happening, Danielle is taking the money she was tossed, that 20 gold francs, to go get Maurice. She's going to buy the servant back that had been um, that had been sold. <laughs> she borrows a dress. I don't know if it's from a sister or who it's from. Um, it, it's obvious there's a picture in the scene. It looks like an, an artist room, a painter's room, like this painter is doing um, portraits. And so there's a picture in the room, and the picture shows a woman wearing this dress. So I don't know if it's a studio or what the situation is, but she borrows this dress, a dress that a courtier, courtier? that feels right. I don't know why all of a sudden I can't say that word, would wear and heads off after the jailers who are shipping um, the servants off to the Americas. They say that quite a bit throughout the movie. Which is our first plot point. Danielle masquerading as a courtier to save a man's life. While arguing with the jailer, she meets the prince. Henry, again, who doesn't recognize her solely because he is an arrogant aristocrat, because she doesn't even have a pair of Clark Kent glasses on. There's no reason why she doesn't recognize him. So they meet again. He's intrigued with her um, as she spouts utopian ideals, yelling at the jailer and then arguing with him impersonating courtier she could go to jail herself so she's got to keep up the act and she ends up calling herself he keeps asking her for her name what's your name what's your name and she calls herself a countess and then gives him her late mother's name the countess then nicole de la de l'ancre so she is now nicole for a good part of the movie so when i say nicole that is danielle if you're unfamiliar with the movie hopefully you're not oh i hope you're not i hope you've seen this one and as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of Act One, the start of the story where an intelligent, headstrong woman stands up for what she believes in and a lost, insecure prince goes chasing after her. I struggle a bit. We're just just to catch up about how I feel about Act One. I struggle a bit with Drew Barrymore's acting, going to be honest. At times, she's very natural. And at other times, it's almost like she's thinking too hard about what she's supposed to be doing. And it comes off a little stilty and very awkward. Do Gray Scott, who plays Prince Henry, has some awkward tendencies as well. But, but, oh, sorry, I just hit the mic. But Danielle's best friend, Gustav, is played by Lee Ingleby, who plays Stan Shunpike, the night bus concierge in the Harry Potter films. One of my favorite characters in the entire Harry Potter series. I love him. Stan Shumpike. Um, and then that's, of course, next to Oliver Wood. Maybe one day we'll talk Harry Potter. But overall, I love giving the story historical context, the struggle of social hierarchy, the role or lack thereof of women in the world. And of course, Leo, who really is a sweet bearded fellow. You just you like him and you want him to be around in more scenes. Which leads to act two, the rising action. Let's continue on. So Maurice is saved, but Danielle is in pretty hot water at home when her stepmother gets all up in her business about throwing apples at the prince. Seeing that as a threat to the likelihood of getting one of her daughters, Marguerite and Jacqueline, married off to his highness. Rodmilla is in cahoots 
I guess, with a royal messenger dude, short little, short little guy, actor you've seen in everything. I guess this was his first um, American role. And she flirts with him and pays him off, and he kind of gives her little gossip pieces of news that might organically get them in front of the prince or just gives them a one-up in society. And he ends up sneaking her one of the queen's necklaces. It must have dropped in the carriage and he picked it up and gives it to her so that she can pretend that she found it and have, you know, an end with the queen. Um, they also learn that the prince will be holding a ball. So back at home, they start to go through their wardrobe looking for something to wear, knowing they can't really afford to buy anything new. I mean, they're having to sell their servants to pay off debt. And they end up sneaking into Danielle's room and debate stealing her late mother's dress that she kind of keeps in a hope chest of sorts uh, for Marguerite because it's this beautiful silver dress. But Danielle catches them in the act and they pretend that they were just getting out out for her to wear you know as long as she finishes all of her chores she can go to the ball too rod Miller ends up selling off items from around the house to pay for a new frock while accusing the servants of stealing the same items because she is just absolutely the worst she's like where's the candlesticks why would you guys steal the candlesticks from me when she knows very well that she sold them <sighs> oh she's the worst Danielle goes truffle hunting in the woods and discovers that she's in quite the state. She looks a little like, oh, the Peanuts character Pigpen and decides to go for a swim because there's just always lakes nearby, I guess. <laughs> there she runs into Leo, who is walking on water with one of his inventions, and the prince, who had been hanging out with Leo, who is just over the moon to see her. They bicker some more and flirt some more, and we have the first pinch point, a reminder of the antagonist force that is going to get in our protagonist's way. Danielle is a commoner. She dressed as a courtier to, fall, you know, to save a man's life, um, and she ends up being a commoner dressed as a courtier who falls in love with the prince. The pinch is continued in the scene that following day at the market, so Again, Henry has no idea that that is not, that Danielle is not Nicole. He thinks she's a contest that is the countess, cont they keep saying contest. Jeez, words are hard. Um, who is visiting a cousin in the kingdom, and that's why she's there, and that's why he had never met her before. But the pinch continues in a scene the following day at the market when Danielle comes face to face with Monsieur Lepieu a nasty fellow who propositions her. This will come into play later. And at the same time, Mar Marguerite finds the prince who is playing tennis. <laughs> and she puts on all the charms. She likes to wear this really giant brooch um, right in her bust line so it draws attention to her boobs. It's pretty funny. They go strolling through the market together as well. And Danielle barely evades being spotted because she's at a, a booth, you know, collecting items. So she can't be seen by the prince because she doesn't have her, her Nicole garb on. We have to go back to Le Pew for a second before we move on. He looked so familiar to me. I mean, it was driving me crazy during my rewatch. So I hopped on IMDb as I do. And by golly, if it isn't Richard O'Brien who plays Riff Raff on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. What a different role. <laughs> anyway, just before we get to the midpoint of the story, when Prince Henry searches for and finds the Contest Nicole and invites her on a day trip to a local monastery that has a library. Sweet date, Prince man, wooing a girl with books. I mean, it works, sir. 
It works. We get this scene, though, before that happens with Danielle and Gustav, again, her best friend, talking about what would happen if Marguerite were able to actually get the prince to propose. And you don't get this in any other Cinderella adaptation. Danielle is actually pretty excited about the idea, despite being attracted to the prince, because that would mean her family would move into the castle and she would be able to stay in the manor with her maid family and work on returning it to its former glory. She would have her life back, the simple life that she wants. She doesn't, she's never, you know, even thought about being a princess or a person of the court. She just wants to live her life in the family home, which I, I just love that adding that little scene that adds a lot to the story. And I think tells a lot about who Danielle is. It shows depth to the character. She's not in fact looking for love. It's, finds her which is beautiful but she wants to carve her own path she loves her home and it's just that stability that she's after but back to the midpoint the very sexy date a shift in the relationship where danielle allows herself to be caught by henry no more running away from him she lets him catch her and i like that too that she made the decision for it on their way back to the castle, so they've gone to the monastery, monastery, they've talked books, it's wonderful. On the way back to the castle, the carriage breaks down and they decide to just walk without any security, which seems very unlikely. There are guards with them at the carriage and then none of them go with them on the, on the walking journey. They end up being captured by the same gypsies that had stolen from Leo and Danielle, um, they tell her, they ask for her dress. So she trades her dress. And then they said, whatever you can carry out of here is yours. And so she ends up throwing Henry over her back and walking out. And they just think that's the funniest thing in the world. Another great moment, though, where she's taking control of the situation and not being a damsel in distress. As I mentioned, their captors are highly amused by all of this. They actually bring them home with them, get them drunk, and then send them on their way. But before they do, there is some smoochy smoochy between Nicole and Henry. So Danielle then gets a rude awakening by her stepmother the next day, out of bed, completely hungover. Um, she offers up some sass. She's no longer taking what her stepmother is giving, which Rodmilla does not appreciate at all. This ends... Any guilt she may have felt about wanting to take that beautiful dress in her stepdaughter's room, which then sends Danielle into a frenzy. She ends up smacking the horrible Marguerite, and then that ends with a lashing, so she gets whipped on the back several times. Then there's a kind moment between Danielle and the other sister, Jacqueline, who hates the shenanigans of her mother and sister and is really kind soul. Um, and she tends to her, her wounds as um, they have a moment. And Jacqueline is played by Melanie Linsky, who is a completely underrated actress. Um, she pops up from time to time in things and just gives amazing performances. I could and would happily do an entire podcast about her filmography. It's very varied, too, which is neat. The necklace trick worked. You remember that necklace trick where the little messenger guy gave Rod Miller the queen's necklace? Well, that ends up working. Rod Miller and Marguerite are in with the queen. During a tea, though, the queen mentions that Henry keeps disappearing with some contest and is highly smitten. And Rod Miller asks, you know, what is this contest's name? And she ends up putting two, to two, two and two together, especially when she hears the name of the contest and she recognizes it as Danielle's mother's name. And spitefully tells the queen that the contest is already engaged. So she's created this lie because she does not want Danielle to get the guy. Danielle, as Nicole, sneaks away one last time to see Henry in some local ruins. 
I think all forests should have beautiful ruins tucked away for exploration or castles. Oh, Europe is so lucky. Danielle is trying to confess her secret. She wants to get it off of her chest. Hey, Henry, guess what? I am not, in fact, a court courtier. I am a commoner. But Henry starts waxing poetic about his feelings for her after one date and two chance meetings. So very Hallmark-esque. And she chickens out. She kind of runs away crying. She, I don't, she doesn't want to disappoint him. And I don't think she wants to give up that moment either um, because there's more smoochy smoochies. Which leads us to the second pinch point. Radmilla discovers Danielle's full deception and locks her in the cellar before the ball. And the queen reveals Radmilla's gossip about Nicole's engagement to Henry, who is heartbroken. So um, Danielle's locked in a cellar before the fall. Henry believes this contest that he has fallen in love with is actually engaged to somebody else and has left to go marry this guy. Tensions are high with the second pinch point. Henry is so heartbroken, in fact, that he agrees to accept his father's proposed marriage to a Spanish princess, whom Henry has never met. Whatever, just get me married off. Apparently this love thing didn't work. He's very dramatic. Gustav, because he is just an awesome friend, goes in search of Leo, who he thinks can help Danielle, um, which he does because he understands physics. <laughs> he knows how to get, you know, he understands hinges. So he helps get the cellar door off and fancies her up for the ball so she can go get her guy. Third plot point, Danielle is a showstopper as usual when she arrives at the party. All eyes on her, but there's no magic to keep her unrecognizable from her stepmother, which is kind of an important part of all of the other adaptations, that she has a moment in the court with the prince and nobody else knows who she is. Um, so all eyes are on her. Um, Henry blushes and, you know, runs to her and drags her toward the throne to meet her, his parents. She stops, but Ranmilla stops the festivities and reveals that there is no Nicole, only Danielle, a servant. Henry doesn't take this well. He kind of denounces her in front of everybody and then storms off because he's just a whiny baby. She passes. So Danielle's upset. She's going to leave. She starts running away. She passes Leo on her way out of the castle, losing a shoe, of course, and heads home crying. Leo then picks up the shoe and goes to call on Henry and he calls him out for being a hypocrite, you know, denying the very love he kept telling him that he wanted, which ends act two. A few thoughts about act two. Um, what is it? Why is it that we are able to suspend belief to believe that people fall in love after one date and are willing to accept a proposal of marriage? I'm a sucker for it every time, even though it is a story mechanism that drives me crazy. It's kind of one of the worst tropes. I'm sure it has happened. And I'm sure there are some folks out there who lived happily ever after, but it's such an annoying concept to me. So ill-advised and unsettling. You don't know each other at all. How could you trust after one date that you are not marrying a psychopath? And yeah, yeah, you could say, Emily, even people that have been dating somebody for years don't realize they're dating a psychopath, but there would be potential red flags that you would be able to look for. It's just too soon. They know nothing about you. I'm done now. Sorry. That part just drives me crazy. And finally, act three, where we reach the climax of the movie and get a resolution. Rodmilla makes a deal with Le Pew, that dirty man from the market, um, Danielle for payment of her debt. 
So Le Pew returns all of the assumed stolen items, um, you know, the candlesticks and the silver and everything that Ranmilla claimed the servants had stolen just to take them off and lead them in, a, you know, a red herring that, hey, I'm not actually selling off this stuff. Um, and so he then grabs Danielle and drags her back to his manor. She has now been sold. Ranmilla wants nothing else to do with Danielle, which leads to the climax of the story. Meanwhile, Henry almost goes through with his marriage to the Spanish princess until he discovers that she, too, is in love with a commoner. She's crying. It's a great scene, sobbing, walking down the aisle. And there's this little cute little man standing off the side crying, too. Oh, it's so nice. I love it. Um, so he realizes he's an idiot. Finally, Henry, you are an idiot, and goes to look for Danielle, discovering that she has been sold to Le Pew. So he's got a few guards in tow. He comes riding to the rescue, but our heroine has saved herself, convincing by blade Le Pew to hand over the key to her shackles. Henry asks for her forgiveness, says her real name, which makes her swoony, and the two get married. Not right there presumably back at the castle. And finally, the resolution. As far as I'm concerned, one of the best non-violent cinematic resolutions. Rodmilla and Marguerite have no idea that Danielle is now a princess. They get summoned to the court, thinking Marguerite is going to get the proposal she's after. The king immediately accuses Rodmilla of lying to the queen about not only the necklace, but also the contest. She didn't say, no, that's my stepdaughter. She went along with the game. There's some serious backpedaling between Rodmilla and Marguerite before the queen strips them of their titles. Rodmilla is no longer a baroness and threatens to send them to the Americas if no one will speak up for them. Then out comes Danielle, a royal commoner who asks, she's like, hello, and she's got a crown on her head and it's just a wonderful moment. She asks her new in-laws to bestow upon Rodmilla and Marguerite the same hospitality that they had shown her all of her life. So the two become servants in the castle. They're, they're in the laundry area, and the princess and her husband lived happily ever after. I should note, Jacqueline does not get punished because she is a sensible, kind-hearted woman um, who was on Danielle's side. So here's my pet peeve with the ending. I hate to say this, but as the climax of the story being Danielle's capture and escape from Le Pew, it's very anticlimactic. By all appearances, she's only been at Le Pew's for maybe an hour or so. We have no idea how much time has passed, but it, it leads you to believe that little to no time has passed at all. Um, so there's no time then to build up any additional tension between the two, especially since we've only met Le Pew one or two other times. He gets handsy once and granite once is enough, but she was, has this ready access to a sword. The whole scene lasts less than a minute. That's it. And I just wish there had been more to it. And then Henry comes riding in, but does absolutely nothing, which is totes cool on one side, you know, that she saved herself and that he didn't have to do anything, but there's just no, there's no crescendo, at least the kind of crescendo you're used to getting in the Cinderella story or other movies like this with the prince going all over the kingdom day after day in search of a girl who wears a glass slipper. There's just no buildup in that way. It's like all of this and then, oh, it's done. And I just find that a little frustrating. I really have no serious qualms with this movie, though. It's sweet. It actually 
We get a heroine who knows her own mind and doesn't just sit in the shadows. We have a prince that is maybe a little too nice at times. Not a lot of substance to him, but he has dreams of his own. And he is very pretty, so that's enough for me. And the historical context, while faulty, um, really holds the whole thing together nicely. It's a great watch or rewatch. And I started to think back um, as I was watching the film, and I was thinking back to what I said about her not wanting any of the magic and Susanna Grant, not wanting to write magic into it. And I think that has always been my pet peeve with the story, not the fact that she ends up with the guy. And I, you know, as I mentioned, I don't think that she was a damsel in distress and needed to be saved. I think she was saving herself in her own way, but it was the magic, the assumption that she would need a fairy godmother, someone to come in and abracadabra her into confidence. And this movie doesn't have that. Leonardo is there as like a a wise voice, but it's all in Danielle the whole time. She doesn't need that magic to make her stand out. And I, I think that's what I like most about the movie. A few interesting tidbits. Drew Barrymore stated that this is her favorite of all of her films. As depicted in the film, the real Leonardo da Vinci kept the Mona Lisa with him all the time until his death. Oh, he loved that lady. Henry almost marries a Spanish princess. The real-life Prince Henry was related to the Spanish royals as his stepmother, Eleanor, his mother Marie in the movie, was the granddaughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain through her mother, Joanna. So Joanna would have been the sister of Catherine of Aragon, who was divorced by Henry VIII of England. Um, And Marie makes mention to this a little bit in the movie, that divorce is only something they do in England. So... That's kind of interesting. Again, historical fiction, but they've pulled in bits of real history that kind of tie it together. Jude Law and Johnny Lee Miller turned down the role of Prince Henry. I think Jude Law could have been pretty good at it. Houston, Angelica Houston has been nominated for and or won just about every prestigious award that is available to film actors. But thanks to Ever After, she also added an unfortunate one to that list. In the debut year of Fox's Teen Choice Awards, Houston was nominated for her work as Ever After's villain via a cringeworthy award called Choice Sleazebag. <laughs> they now just call it Choice Villain, but I just like how Choice Sleazebag. She didn't win, thank goodness, um, but I just think that's funny. Well, it took about a decade. It was eventually revealed that Ever After was to be adapted into a live musical, originally planned to have its debut as early as 2009. The Ever After musical experienced several delays before it finally hit the stage in May of 2015. That initial run, which only lasted a month, saw Sierra Bogus, who played Ariel in Broadway's The Little Mermaid, take on Drew Barrymore's role. In spite of its seemingly troubled history, the world hasn't given up on the Ever After musical just yet. As another production of the show is set to debut or was set to debut in January 2019 and was to feature the nanny's Charles Shaughnessy in the role of King Francis. And our last little tidbit here, um, it's not terribly uncommon for movies to have songs that aren't on the soundtrack or vice versa. It is also a very well-established practice for a movie's trailer to use a song that doesn't appear in either the movie or the soundtrack at all. Ever After is guilty of this, with most of its trailers and commercials being accompanied by Celtic New Age track The Mummer's Dance, written and performed by Lorena McKinnon. I love that. (laughs) 
I remember I bought that album because of the trailer. I fell in love with the song in the trailer. Not that McKinnon had any reason to complain after so many people became aware of her and her song during the promotional cycle Forever After. The song saw a surge in popularity that helped it go all the way to number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100. That's very impressive feat for both a new age song and a song that people mostly only knew from commercials. So that was our tidbits. Now for the big questions. Would I survive in this movie? And my answer to that is to see my answer to the question in the last episode. It's the same issue. Yes, I think I could survive. But no, I do not think I would thrive. I most definitely would not thrive in a society where women have little to no rights, are forced to marry for economic means, have no agency over their existence, and the fact that there's no indoor plumbing. Is this movie believable? I don't know. I go back and forth on this answer. I want to believe it's believable. I'm sure there were women who bucked convention and carved out their own path, but I'm also sure those women, more often than not, face the consequences of their actions. The fact that she did all of this lying too and still got the man, um, I don't know, in royal societies, if that would have you know, been as well received as it was in the movie. And I want to believe that, that a peasant woman could find herself on to the path of a prince, you know, throw fruit at his person and still win his heart and not the gallows. But again, I'm just not so sure. So that's my answer. I want to believe it's believable. Does this movie hold up? As a story filled with feminist ideals that speak to hot topics we're still dealing with today, yes, it does. I have mixed feelings about Drew Barrymore's performance, though. There are moments when I feel like, hey, she's got this, Uh, but then other moments when the accent slips or she's stiff or she doesn't really seem to know how to behave naturally that I wish someone else had the role. I can say the same about Do Grace Scott at times as well, though, too. You know who gets it really, really right, though? Melanie Linsky. She was perfect as Jacqueline, and I really liked a stepsister that was sympathetic toward Danielle and her past. You don't often get that either. And the new one on Amazon with Camilla Cabello, her stepsisters aren't horrible. They don't treat her unkindly. She's clearly not of their class, but they are good to her. So I like that as well. And on to the last little segment of the podcast, book recommendations. Fairy tale retellings are my jam. I love them, and I have read many of them, but keeping it to just two is going to be tricky. I think I can do it, though. We'll see how I do. First up, a retelling of the Cinderella story from the perspective of one of the sisters. It's Jennifer Donnelly's stepsister. Isabella should be blissfully happy she's about to win the handsome prince, except Isabel isn't the beautiful girl who lost the glass zipper and captured the prince's heart. She's the ugly stepsister who's cut off her toes to fit into Cinderella's shoe, which is now filling with blood. So it's what happens to Isabella afterwards when Cinderella goes off and marries the prince and she kind of has to deal with the family dynamics of having a mother who forced her to cut off her toes um, for a man that didn't love her. I am a huge fan of Jennifer Donnelly. I won't list all of the other books she's written that I'm dying to recommend. We've got a lot of movies, though, to go, so maybe they'll come up in the future. Uh, Better to keep some of my favorite reads in my back pocket. But she breathes heart into her characters. This one is no different. It's a story about family and jealousy and carving out your own path. I gave it five out of five stars. And secondly, after a bit of stressing, I'm going to go with... A duology by Renee Adia, which is a little bit of a cheat because it's two books, but it's a retelling of 1001 Nights, The Wrath and the Dawn. That's the title of the first one. 
Much like the Ever After story, it's about a girl who finds herself in the presence of a royal and through stubbornness and intellect succeeds at not only staying alive, but falling in love as well. I gave it four out of five stars. Um, As I mentioned, it's a retelling of Shahrazade and the 1001 Nights. It's so good. It's so good. So these are some teen picks this time, but ones I definitely think you should check out. And with that, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. You can follow me on Instagram at at gnomegirlm and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today. I will see you.